When you get to see one of Michelangelo's masterpieces in person, it could be his frescoes in the Sistine Chapel or his famous statues of David or the Pietà, you're seeing works of art that are not only beautiful, they're revolutionary. In the height of the Italian Renaissance, Michelangelo Bonarroti of Florence added a humanistic sensibility to the religious art that he was commissioned to create. He fought with his patrons to create what his inner muse saw, and Michelangelo left us a legacy that touches the deepest chords of the human spirit 500 years later. Miles J. Unger spent five years in Florence in preparation for writing Michelangelo, A Life in Six Masterpieces. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us how Florence is an ideal place to understand Michelangelo. That's because Florence retains much of the character that framed Michelangelo's world. Miles, thanks for joining us. A pleasure. You know, what, something striking and something you mentioned in your book, Michelangelo, A Life in Six Masterpieces, is how... Florence today, to a large extent, feels like Florence in Michelangelo's time 500 years ago. How so? It's uh, been preserved very well, in part because it, shortly after Michelangelo's death, it sort of slid into irrelevance. It was a nation-state, a city-state on the decline, and so it did not have the great post-Michelangelo building boom that Rome had with those, all those wonderful Baroque uh, churches and palaces. Uh, so it, in a way, it was a city frozen in time. And today, when you visit uh, Florence, you can walk within what were the city walls, a uh, very easy walk. You can cover so many dimensions of Michelangelo's career. If you were to be our tour guide and design a visit in Florence to just pick up on the genius and the wonder of Michelangelo, how would you structure it? Where would you go first? Well, I think the place to start is the Casa Buonarroti, which is a property he purchased himself. It's not where he grew up, but it's one of the palaces he purchased as soon as he had some money. There they have some of his earliest works, particularly the Battle of the Centaurs and the Madonna of the Stairs, which are his two earliest sculptures. So I think that's a good place to start. It wasn't necessarily his boyhood home. It's treated like the house of the Buonarroti family. And if there is a Michelangelo museum in town, that would be it. Uh, nearby is Santo Spirito, and uh, Santo Spirito is, seems just like another church, but it has actually some of his work in situ, doesn't it? It does. It has a crucifixion, though I have to say that this is disputed. Not everyone believes this is a genuine Michelangelo. Um, most scholars do, but hmm. most people think it was a, a work he did as a young man after he did a number of dissections in hmm. the church there, in the morgue of the ah. church, and in gratitude for allowing him to do this, which was not really considered uh, kosher back in those days. Um, he carved this nude Christ for the church, which uh, is still there. And it hangs on a cross to this day, 500 years later. And that's a good point. Michelangelo had that Renaissance appetite and curiosity for understanding what's under the skin. And it was very dicey to be uh, dissecting corpses. And uh, if you had good connections in the church, you could probably have access to some corpses and that let Michelangelo do his research. And uh, it shows in his art, I would say. I think it's exciting to see a Michelangelo actually not in a museum, but in the original place it was intended to be. The artistic term for that, I think, is in situ. And a beautiful thing about the crucifix in Santo Spirito is it's that slender, less muscular Michelangelo that you see in his early years, and later on he got into his more massive and big-bodied work. The Bargello, the former prison in Florence, is uh, to statues what the Uffizi is to painting, isn't it? Yeah, it has one of the great collections of Renaissance, particularly early Renaissance sculpture, and if 
uh, you want to see the sculptures of David that Michelangelo was looking at when he sculpted his own David. There are a couple of wonderful ones. The Donatello is there, the wonderful bronze Donatello David and the Verrocchio uh, David as well. But uh, in terms of Michelangelo's, the most important works there are the early Bacchus, which was the first work mm -hmm. he did in Rome. And again, not the kind of over-muscled figure that you expect of Michelangelo, and also one of the early reliefs he did of the mother and child, uh, the Piti Tondo, is there as well. So that would be on your list, the Bargello. And you mentioned something really that I hadn't even thought of, Miles, but to appreciate Michelangelo, appreciate the art that inspired him. And in the Bargello, you could see those earlier Davids by Verrocchio and Donatello. Was Michelangelo actually inspired by those masterpieces? He was very inspired by Donatello in particular, who no Florentine sculptor could sort of escape the legacy of, of Donatello. But I think he was, he wanted to do something very different. His is a much more monumental figure. It takes a different point in the story. It takes the, the point before David has defeated Goliath. So he's looking at Donatello, but I think he's trying to do something very different. And he certainly did. You can almost psychoanalyze the, the tenor of the age by looking at the treatment of David from one generation to the next. Uh, of course, Michelangelo is a Renaissance genius, and almost by definition that means you are a master of different uh, media. And he was an architect, he was a sculptor, and a painter. And if you want to see, uh, I think the only painting I've ever seen by Michelangelo is in the Uffizi. Yeah, it's the only painting on panel, if you don't include the great frescoes, of course. Right. Uh, the Sistine Chapel and the uh, Last Judgment. It's the only panel painting. And describe uh, he it. Did not, he famously did not like painting, and uh, even though he was trained as a painter in Ghirlandaio's studio, he kept saying, oh, it's not my art, and trying to beg off various projects. But he was, as you can see, if you look at the Holy mm -hmm. Family, a highly skilled and trained painter. But when you look at the Holy Family, you, you feel like his heart is in sculpture because the figures he painted have that sculptural kind of depth, don't they? They do. Um, unlike his great rival and the, the person he was looking at when he was painting this, he was look, definitely looking at Leonardo da Vinci's uh, wonderful family groupings and trying to compete with him. But whereas Leonardo's painting these soft, misty, mm. you know, his famous sfumato, <laughs> everything in the Holy Family is, you know, as if lit by Klieg lights. It's, you know, it just this pops. harsh, bright light. And I always think it's interesting that when all this controversy happened uh, a couple of decades ago about cleaning the Sistine Chapel and people saying, oh, well, all the, you know, if you clean it off, it's way too garish. I was thinking to myself, well, just look at the Holy Family in the Uffizi and look how, how garish these colors are. They're bright and, you know, these lime mm -hmm. greens and purples are very much the colors that popped out after the uh, Sistine ceiling was cleaned. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Miles J. Unger. Miles's book is Michelangelo, A Life in Six Masterpieces. And we're traveling through Florence right now, dropping into all the sites that have Michelangelo masterpieces. And, of course, people go to Florence to see David. David originally was positioned outside of the uh, city government building on the Piazza della Signoria, and it ended up a replica there and the original nearby in the Academia uh, Gallery. Uh, talk for a minute, please, Miles, about the Piazza della Signoria and how that relates to Michelangelo. The Piazza della Signoria and the palazzo behind it were the seat of the Florentine government. And Florence at this time was a separate nation-state with a proud centuries-old history, but it was beleaguered on all sides by much larger foes who wanted to swallow it up. And the David was sculpted as a patriotic symbol, 
and it was placed in the center, the civic center of Florence. It had actually originally been commissioned to stand on top of the uh, tribune of the cathedral, but the city fathers quickly realized it would be much more effective as a patriotic symbol if it sat there in the civic square. Mm -hmm. So today you can see a very good copy of the David standing where it stood for many centuries. And then uh, one can go on to see the original in the Academia Museum a few blocks away, where you see the sort of exquisite art of the original, the subtlety of the carving, the beauty of the surfaces. But you sort of need to keep both aspects of the sculpture in mind, both the sort of perfection of it as a work of art, but also as a kind of civic patriotic symbol. And it also reminds me, uh, Miles, when I think about the situation of the replica of David in front of the old palace, the fact that the Renaissance was a great cultural thing, but it wasn't for the commoners so much, and it was up in the higher floors of the palace there, with the windows just out of stone's throw reach. And uh, I believe that the story is they were having a riot and people broke into the palace and they threw furniture out the window. It actually knocked off a part of the statue of Michelangelo's precious David. And they realized they needed to put David uh, safely off the street and into a, a gallery. Uh, is that your understanding of it? Well, it, that happened actually years later. It was damaged. And interestingly enough, the great art historian and sort of disciple of Michelangelo saved the arm and preserved it until after the riots were over and then mm. reattached it. But it, it did stand out there for a couple of centuries more and before it was brought in, I think, in the 19th century okay. to preserve it from the mostly from the weather the and weather. pollution and other other damage. When you see the, the David today, you see it almost like it's in a church, like it's the altar of, of humanism mm-hmm. under this amazing dome. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really been transformed from, and this is the way art often goes, art particularly it's made for a particular political or religious purpose. It's often, nowadays we're used to seeing things in museums where they're sort of sanitized and separated. We look at them as aesthetic objects first mm. and foremost. Mm. And this is certainly one way to look at them. But I think it's also important to understand the way they functioned within society at the time as propaganda, as, as a kind of patriotic or religious symbol. They were not sort of separated from life the way they are now in the kind of climate-controlled atmosphere of the museum. You know, I think that is so important to understand the context and who paid for it and why. What was the agenda? Because this art took a lot of money and people had an agenda. And uh, in so many cases, like David, it had a, a real purpose. Well, let's talk about the Pieta. There's three or four Michelangelo Pietas. A beautiful, of course, the most famous one is in St. Peter's, but a beautiful Pieta is in the museum of the Duomo, of the cathedral, uh, just behind the cathedral. That's one of the highlights and one of the less appreciated masterpieces by Michelangelo, I would say. Yeah, it's uh, partly because it was never finished. In fact, he wanted to destroy it himself. This was the statue that was meant for he meant for his own tomb. But he was working on it late in life, and it was a very complex figure grouping with four figures, including his own self-portrait as Nicodemus, who brings the body down from the cross. But he really had a hard time with it. He at one point he smashed the I think it's the right leg of Christ mm-hmm. in anger because he couldn't get it right, and he wanted to sort of throw it out in frustration mm-hmm. and anger. Uh, but fortunately, it was preserved, and it is a very moving both the unfinished self-portrait as Nicodemus plus the the body of Christ is just one of the most wonderful passages in all his sculpture. Uh, but it is an incomplete and probably uncompletable sculpture, which is why he himself was uh, so furious and, and frustrated by its execution. 
I find it so touching because I'm looking at that portrait, that face of Nicodemus, which is actually the very old Michelangelo looking down at one of his last major pieces of art. And, and you have this beautiful pieta below him and, and Michelangelo as Nicodemus is looking down over it. And then maybe cap your um, visit to Florence with the Michelangelo theme by going to the Santa Croce Church because there you will find Michelangelo's tomb surrounded by all the other great Florentine, you know, big names of the Renaissance. And it is quite a reminder that this was a time of great energy and things coming together, a perfect storm of creativity and, and artistic wonder. What do you see when you go into Santa Croce, Miles? I love Santa Croce. It's one of my favorite churches in uh, Florence. And I love the square outside Santa Croce as well. Um, but it was used as the Medici for a long time tried to make it into a kind of pantheon of Florentine greatness. Uh, and Machiavelli is buried there as well. It was also the church that was the Buonarotti sort of parish church. It was right in their neighborhood. It was the one that Michelangelo himself felt most closely tied. But it really gives you a sense of the kind of constellation of genius that was created in a city that in Michelangelo's time was no more than 50,000 maximum people. Uh, but, you know, the, the number of, of great artists and poets and philosophers mm. that came out of there is truly, I think, the only city that I think in history that could rival that record would be uh, Athens in the 5th century BC. It was mm. just one of these moments where everything came together and you really see in the Church mm. of Santa Croce. So there in Santa Croce, you've got really that celebration of all the greatness that came together, that perfect storm of creativity and genius and civic pride that put Florence on the map. Miles J. Unger, thank you for writing Michelangelo, A Life in Six Masterpieces, and thanks a lot for giving us a better understanding of how we can enjoy the brilliance of Michelangelo next time we go to Florence. Well, thank you. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com. Ricksteves.com.